This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Vader. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Ms. Lynn Twist. Uh, for more than 40 years, Lynn has been recognized as a global visionary committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. Uh, she's a recent guest on Oprah Winfrey's show, and she is the author of The Soul of Money, which is what we'll be focusing on today. And that book has been re-released and is now available uh, on Amazon.com uh, and every other way you can get a book these days. Lynn, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Oh, it's an absolute delight. Thank you for asking me. Lynn, uh, in case there's a few people out there who are not familiar with you and your work, um, maybe you can give us a, a brief history of how you came to be uh, the Lynn Twist who's um, involved with a, about a thousand different uh, organizations and who came to write uh, The Soul of Money back in 2003. Well, thank you for that wonderful question. Um, I've been very fortunate to live what I call a committed life. And what I mean by that is that I got sort of swept off my feet um, when I was a young mother, uh, married with three little little kids, uh, by the idea that Buckminster Fuller and Werner Erhard and John Denver created that we could end world hunger on this planet. And um, that was the birth of the Hunger Project. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I really realized, oh, my God, this is why I was born. My life can make a difference. I can really do something that matters. And um, so I got deeply engaged in the work of ending world hunger. And my my family did, my husband, my kids, we, we just became a kind of an ending hunger family. And it took me all over this beautiful planet, um, obviously to the places where people are most hungry, uh, like the subcontinent of India, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and India uh, itself. Uh, and then sub-Saharan Africa, Ethiopia, Guinea-Bissau, Gambia, Zimbabwe, Senegal, Ghana, South Africa, Namibia, places uh, where people were really living in, um, in, in abject poverty and in some cases famine and hunger. And then because I was uh, the person who said I would take responsibility for the fundraising, I ended up traveling all over the world to places where people have more resources than, than they need, like you know Japan, France, Germany, the United States, Canada. Australia, uh, places where um, where fundraising is uh, is a, a rich and beautiful part of the culture, and so um, that journey of ending world hunger and uh, becoming deeply involved in that issue, which which in introduces you to poverty and um, also to fundraising and people's very difficult relationship with money, um, became a, a huge part of my consciousness. And when you work with people who, uh, the people I'll just say I used to call poor, I would never use that term with them any longer because when you know them, when you work with them, when you have your hands in the dirt with people in Ethiopia after the famine, you realize there's nothing poor about them. They're strong, courageous, amazing, deeply 
spiritual people who who live in the circumstances of poverty, but they're not poor. What's poor is their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Who they are is absolutely magnificent. And so I really discovered my relationship with spirit and God and divinity almost through working with people in such dire circumstances that what they had to draw on was their inner life because their outer life was so difficult. And their rich inner life became uh, a teaching for me. Um, so that was a, about a 20, 25-year journey. And then now I work with the indigenous peoples of the Amazon in the sacred headwaters region of Ecuador and Peru and in the deep in the Amazon rainforest, people who never even knew there was a thing called money. And they live in a very profound spiritual relationship with one another, with the natural world, with the spirits of the forest. And everything is reciprocal. They, they, they say, you know, you can't. Uh, about money because that's the topic of my book they mm-hmm. they say you can't hunt for it you can't eat it why does anybody want it you know to them it's just completely baffling right. so um i've lived what i call a committed life i ended up working with mother Teresa, his holiness the dalai lama i was in south africa when nelson mandela was inaugurated and i was there for the last day of apartheid i've had privileges and experiences that um i never could have planned but for following my highest commitments rather than my desires. And, um, and so that's sort of a long answer to your question, but that led me to really understanding our pathological relationship with money, which is at the root of so many of the problems we, we need to deal with today. Right. Lynn, let's talk about that, because in your book, The Soul of Money, uh, you deal with that, examining our attitudes toward money, earning it, spending it, uh, giving it away. Uh, and uh, how it gives insight into our own lives and values. Um, what, what is most people's attitude toward money, and how should it change? Well, um, in all of these settings and uh, relationships, from some of the most resource-poor people on Earth to some of the wealthiest people and families on Earth, I've discovered that pretty much everybody, and I would say it's if it's not 100%, it's 99.9% of all human beings are have anxiety, stress, and upset in their relationship with money, even people with piles of it. In fact, in some cases, those stresses and those uh, anxieties are amplified by the amount of money a person has. And we all think that if we just had more, everything would be fine. But when you meet with people who do have more, or when you actually have more yourself, even if you think, you know, 30% more would solve everything if I had 30% more. If you think 30% ago, you were thinking that too, and now you have 30% more, yet you, oh, wait, no, it's not 30% more. It's, it's, it's the next 30% more. You know, we all think that hmm. that's the answer to, to pretty much everything because the society, the culture of money, I call it the culture of money or the culture, the commer- commercial culture, the monetized culture that we live in, tells us that, you know, promotes that really seduces us to think that it will be the answer to everything. And of course, it makes a huge difference to have more financial resources. Um, I'm not against that. I'm for that. But when that becomes the reason to get up in the morning, the reason for life, when it takes over the soul, when it, when you, you do things that are inconsistent with your humanity because you've got to make more money, you've got to get more money, and that really is sort of the 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 painful pathway that the culture puts us all on, 
we we lose touch with the deepest and most profound nature of who we are. And not everybody does, of course, but most people have a very, very difficult, stressful, anxious relationship with money. In fact, I would say it's where a lot of the suffering in our world is located, people's relationship with money, particularly in the affluent world, particularly where people actually have money to worry about. That's where the suffering is the greatest. Lynn, um, from a spiritual perspective, you see in, in, I can't say all the world's traditions, but the ones I'm most familiar with, um, you see attitudes, uh, almost theologies about money uh, that are all over the place. So you find uh, preachers and people talking about money as almost a sign of God's grace that, you know, those who have it are blessed and have, you know, greater uh, sort of um, uh, are in God's favor. And and the sign of that Mm -hmm. is their money. And then you have the root of all evil aspect of it where people, you know, go to the other extreme. Um, have you found that those kinds of extremes, you know, all over the world? And how do you, who has a more pathological relationship to money? Which extreme? Good <laughs> well, question. Yeah. That's a, uh, who would want that prize? You know? <laughs> I think we all kind of get our, uh, get that prize. It, it's actually, um, we have we have such a distorted relationship with money, and religion is a real big part of that. I believe, um, you know, the the and even even those of us who would call ourselves not so religious but spiritual, we sometimes think that if you're doing something spiritual like this beautiful program that the two of you run, you shouldn't make money off that. You know, some people have that attitude, so that they're we, in, in a, <laughs> we'd love to. <laughs> you don't have that attitude but you know we do have we 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 have a thing about it some of us spiritual Mm -hmm. folk you know we think that that's just not kind of like kosher or something at the same time uh, you see these religious leaders just collecting money hand over fist and making it part of what makes god love you you know so i think we're all confused i think we're all upset i think we're all manipulated i think we're all um caught in a relationship with money that's inauthentic, that actually doesn't serve us, that often is a little bit dishonest, not that we're dishonest, but the relationship with money starts to feel dishonest to us and we start to feel a little off there. Um, and everybody has, that I encounter, it has baggage in their relationship with money. They had a father that screamed at them about money or they had a terrible divorce and they'll never speak to that ex again because of the horrible thing, but not... What really was horrible about the divorce was the money part. Um, so we, we have attached so much meaning to money. We've made it more important than God. We've made it more important than spirit. We've made it more important than the natural world. We've made it more important than our relationships with each other. And our behavior is consistent with that rather than money is a tool with which to live a fulfilling and committed and useful life where we're uh, we're we're fulfilling the highest good, and so I money is innocent in my view. You know, money is like water. Let me put it this way: you know, money moves through every life. It is all over this world. It moves around the world. We all it, it, it every it goes through every life. It belongs to all of us, or it belongs to none of us. You mm-hmm. could say 
It just keeps moving around like water. And there's this wonderful metaphor I like to use that, you know, water, when it's moving, it purifies, it cleanses, it makes things grow, it nourishes. Um, and it's innocent. But when it's held or hoarded or stuck, it water becomes stagnant, toxic to those who are holding on to it. And money's like that, too. You know, it is meant to move through our lives. And if we use it like water, you know, water can also make people sick because it's a carrier. Money is a carrier, too. That's why it's called a currency, a current. It runs through our lives. And we can use it to do good, or we can use it to manipulate, control, dominate, or we can use it to heal, to nourish, to carry our courage, our commitment. Money's innocent. It's, it's actually how we use it and how what we send with it, what it carries from us. That's why I call the book I wrote The Soul of Money. Money doesn't have a soul, but we do. And when we use money that in a way that's consistent with the highest aspirations of our soul or our spiritual life, that's actually true prosperity. Mm -hmm. That's real prosperity. Right. That's right. that's when we actually prosper. Mm -hmm. Lynn, I, I, have, yeah, I have a question for you along these lines. And it's something that I've, I've wondered about. I have also spent time in <clears throat> third world. I, I spent time doing nonprofit work in South Africa and was in uh, a lot of the townships there that are incredibly impoverished uh, materially. Spiritually, I, I found them to be very rich. But one of the things I noticed and I've observed even, even in America, and that is uh, people that don't have much money, their relationships become more important. When they don't have much materially, relationships become more important. And if you go to any of these communities in these poorer areas, uh, you know, financially poorer, uh, people mingle and they're together all the time. And you see a lot of that. And as people get more money and you go into the neighborhoods of people that have money, whether it's in South Africa or in America, uh, people have fences around their house and walls and guarded. And you go into these gated communities and neighbors don't know each other and they don't interact. And to me, you, something spiritually dies when that happens. And, and we're all affected by that. How does one overcome that? How does one uh, accumulate wealth and money and not uh, seek out uh, isolation and, and, and separating oneself from the world? Uh, well, <laughs> I agree with you completely. You know, you see people driving around with darkened windows in their car. You can't even see who's in there. Um, and they are, it, it puts people in a prison. Actually, they're a prison of their own making. Right. Gated right. communities and... But um, really what opens that up for people who have uh, more resources than they need is philanthropy. And that's, you know, I'm a huge advocate for that. Right. Um, I say, you know, how about living a life where you, you're known for what you allocate rather than what you accumulate? Mm. How about mm. being the kind of person who whatever comes to you, you know, you use what you need, but not more than that. And then any extra that you really realize that belongs to the rest of the world. That belongs... I've just given this in trust until I find where I can make the highest good uh, with this extra. If you are um, someone who knows, and it doesn't even need to be extra. You know, I've learned that from, as you know, from South Africa, people who have nothing or what we would call nothing are giving to each other all the time, right. sharing a meager meal with, you know, 10 kids in their household and a stranger comes in and suddenly they have they somehow provide for that stranger and their five children so it's a it, the act of generosity 
that comes from um, really at the heart of who we are does not require excess. In fact, excess, you know, demands generosity, but it, the word philanthropy, by, by the way, means love of humankind. That's where it comes from, philanthropy, love of humankind. So everybody's a philanthropist. You don't need to have more money than you need to be a philanthropist. And you've seen in South Africa, as I have in kind of every part of the world, um, when people uh, are, are really in touch with who they are, they're generous. They can't wait to share whatever it is they have, even if it's small. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a, a, a wonderful teacher now. That I that I really revere. His name is Brother David Stendelrost. Do you know him? Yes, I do. So Brother David says this wonderful thing. He he says that when when the bowl of life is when we're met by the universe with exactly what we need, which is which is not that much, the bowl of life when we actually realize it's sufficient that we have enough, the bowl of life is full, but not overflowing, and it's kind of bowed at the top but not dribbling over the edges. And he calls that the great fullness of life, the great fullness of life, when you're met by the universe with sufficient resources, which really pretty much everybody is. Then that's so fulfilling. You, in, When you're in the great fullness of life, you're one with God, you're one with the universe. It seems that there is no other. You're one with it all. And that's so fulfilling that the bowl of life overflows and that puts you in what he calls the other branch of gratitude from gratefulness to thanksgiving, where all you want to do is give and serve and share and contribute because the bowl of life is overflowing. And you realize that's for everybody else. And so he calls that the two branches of gratitude, gratefulness and thanksgiving. And I think you can live in those two branches of gratitude for your entire life. But some people, when the bowl of life is full, and almost overflowing, what they demand is a bigger bowl, <laughs> rather than realizing that their their mm-hmm. needs are met. And our society tells you you need a bigger house. You need you know a wing over here and ten thousand more square feet. And if you have a, a summer home, then you need an extra plane to get to the summer home. You know, even the very 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 wealthiest among us think they need more, but it's a pathology that has us using way more resources than the earth can regenerate. Mm-hmm. And it has us all off track, mm-hmm. whether we're, you know, living in, uh, trying to rub two nickels together to pay our rent, or we're swimming in money and, and can't sleep because the stock market might go down. We're all caught in some sort of a trap in our relationship with money where it has us more than we have it. Lynn, did, um, did you have a pathological relationship to money at uh, some point in your life? And uh, how did you get out of it without Lynn Twist around <laughs> to, t- <laughs> to help you? Before you well, <laughs> you know, uh, that's, a, that's a very uh, kind and thoughtful question. You're very generous. I still have a pathological relationship with money. Ah, Are you kidding? Okay. I mean, we all, I think we all do. I think right. it's part of, here's what I think. I think... It's in the culture. I think the money culture, it's, it's, it, let, let me say it this way. It's not your personal rainstorm. It's raining on everybody else, too. It's not my personal rainstorm. It's raining on everybody else, too. We're swimming in the culture of money, and the culture of money is so toxic. You know, if you're a, a healthy fish and, and somebody puts you in a fishbowl with dirty water, you're going to get sick. So I think we, we live in a culture that exalts money above and beyond 
anything else. And we're all caught in a culture that so uh, promotes and pummels us with messages that we're not enough, it's not enough, there's not enough until you acquire this next thing. And that more, 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 more is better. And that's just the way. And that, that I call those, those three statements, there's not enough, more is better. That's just the way that it is. I call it the three toxic myths in the money culture that have us think from a condition of scarcity rather than seeing the world as it is, filled with bounty and generosity and sharing and being met by the universe moment by moment with everything we need. Even a divorce, perhaps, is what we need, you know, to become the kind of person we actually want to be, the independent woman or man that we didn't know we could be. Perhaps this uh, failure in business is what we need. Sometimes what we need is not what we want. But if you trust the universe, if you realize that the universe gives you exactly what you need, I think then you can live in what I call the principle of sufficiency. So I'm not saying I'm there all the time, but given your question, I will say that I do everything I can to live in this principle. And I'll, I'm going to say the principle now, and hopefully it'll be something that's meaningful to people listening. And the principle of sufficiency is this. If you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is what our culture brainwashes us to want more of, if you let go of that chase, it frees up oceans of energy to turn and pay attention to what you have, who you are, and what you have. When you pay attention to, nourish, make a difference with, and share what you have, it expands. So let me say that again. If you let go of trying to get more of what you don't really need, which is what we're brainwashed to want more of, it frees up oceans of energy to turn and pay attention to what you have. When you pay attention to what you have, when you nourish it, when you love it, when you make a difference with it, and when you share it, it expands. So that's the source of prosperity, the recognition of enough and the deep and profound experience of being grateful for it that has us sharing. And there's a shorter way to say that big, long thing, and that is what you appreciate appreciates. Well, well, well but I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Lynn, I, I, we mentioned in the beginning that you've worked uh, to alleviate hunger in the world. It's something you've been very committed to, and I'm sure these principles apply to what you're doing there. Your uh, your venture, your nonprofit to end and alleviate hunger. Uh, there's many groups out trying to feed people in the world and all. Did you have a particularly unique or different angle on it, uh, uh, and continue to have as you work to alleviate uh, hunger in the world? Well, yes, the Hunger Project is um, really about transformation and about sufficiency, which is the principle I just talked about. Um, and uh, I, I actually learned that from Buckminster Fuller, what mm -hmm. I just said. Um, and when I, um, after really having this realization with Bucky Fuller that, um, that everyone everywhere is capable of having a healthy and productive life, and we have enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. That was how I began to see the world, and that's when when I started working on hunger. So you would think, oh my God, 
she worked on hunger. She must have seen people in absolute poverty and hungry and starving. And I did. I've held dying babies in my arms. I know that there's places where people don't have enough. When I talk about not enough as a paradigm, as a way of thinking, as a mindset that has a scrambling for more no matter what in an automatic, you know, unconscious way, I'm really talking about those of us who really do have what we need. And we pretend like we don't because we want all this other stuff. But the people who actually don't have what they need have taught me about sufficiency. It's so, it's so you know, counterintuitive. Just as you said about the people you've met in South Africa, um, working on hunger and poverty in, with the Hunger Project, our real uh, commitment was always not to feed people or not to do aid. There were other organizations doing that that wasn't missing. But what was missing was for hungry people to, or people living in the conditions of hung, hunger to be seen as and to know themselves as whole and complete people who have the wherewithal, the strength, the creativity, the intelligence, and um, and with a, a partner, a little bit of partnership, can end their own hunger. So we used to say there's not a, a billion people who are hungry who we need to help. No, there's a billion people standing on the front lines of the end of hunger who are living in the conditions of hunger. And it's our privilege to join them and have them succeed mm-hmm. in ending their own hunger and have mm-hmm. hunger mm-hmm. As, a, as a planetary <laughs> scourge. Because we do have enough food to feed everybody. And when people are, are really treated as, as whole and complete people, they find their own resilience. And it's particularly true that uh, the key for ending hunger and poverty is the empowerment of women and girls. The lifting of the status, elevating the status and the education and the empowerment of women and girls is the most effective intervention in the eradication of um, hunger and the eradication of poverty. And that's been proven over and over and over again. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's, it's, it's a really powerful intervention. That's great. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up from your side because I was going to ask, uh, my next question was going to be, what about those who are legitimately poor and do not have enough? And thank you for that answer. Um, let me ask you this. You've, you've been talking about uh, money and its uh, relationship to spirituality and the social good for a long time. Um, You probably have seen a cross-section of of people. Um, Have you noticed any differences in the up-and-coming, the young generation Mm. now, the millennials, uh, and as opposed to their parents and grandparents who uh, include people like me and Dennis? are there differences that you notice, and what, what are your observations? Um, well, that's just a delicious question. I love that question, too. Um, yes, I've noticed uh, a, a beautiful uh, blossoming and uh, on the fruit of these next generations of awareness, of consciousness, of eagerness to make a difference with their lives, of ingenuity, of creativity of the capacity to innovate beyond anything that, you know, I was aware of when I was their age. And I'll I'll just say something that Bucky said that's just so inspiring. I'll just, I just want to stick it in here, even though you didn't ask me about this. But Bucky once said to to my husband and I when he had dinner with us, uh, Buckminster Fuller, when he was in his 80s, 
at our house and our children were at the dinner table and my little girl at that time, my kids were six, eight, and ten, and my little girl, the eight-year-old, said something really profound like kids do at the table. And Bucky turned to, to Bill and myself, my husband, and he said, never forget your children are your elders in universe, in universe time. Hmm. Wow. They've come into a more complete, more evolved universe than you'll ever understand except mm-hmm. through their eyes. And that was just a mind boggler. And when I speak to millennials or Gen X and Gen Y audiences, which I do, I, I know I'm speaking to my elders in universe time, people who've come into a more complete, more evolved universe than I can understand, people who were born into what was already underway for the environmental movement. They're environmentally conscious. They care about the consequences of their actions, I think. They, um, they really want to make a difference. Um, some of the companies I've spoken at uh, um, say that they can't keep millennials uh, on their teams. They hire them by the thousands, some of these big consulting firms, but they can't keep them for more than a year or two unless the company turns to something really, really meaningful with their mission and their values mm-hmm. uh, and the way they're working. Mm-hmm. And the shared economy, I think, you know, these these incredible mm-hmm. things like Lyft and Uber and Airbnb, these are being invented by looking at what we already have and sharing it. I mean, that's what the base of the shared economy is. And these are multi-billion dollar companies that are based in what I would call uh, sufficiency people sharing with each other. So I think we, I think we have, you know, and then obviously there's greedy folks and stuff too, but I think the younger generations that have, that have been born, particularly people since the year 2000 have a, They've been born into what I call the third millennium. It is the third millennium. And what I call the Sophia century, uh, the 21st century, which is the century, I think, uh, where not only um, massive, massive information, but now is starting to be what people crave as much as they crave information. And um, so I I think they're off. One other way, you know, in the 20th century, we were all about, you know, I feel charity. And at the end of the 20th century, I realized charity needs to end. We need to do solidarity, not charity. Right. And solidarity <laughs> is what young people want now. Partnership, solidarity, not charity, not feeling sorry for, not haves and have nots, but partnerships and bringing right. everybody to a place of sufficiency. Can I ask a follow-up, Dennis? <clears throat> Go ahead. Just curious, because you evoke Buckminster Fuller, uh, it, it made me wonder if the younger generation uh, knows about him. And because it occurs to me from what you said that his whole notion of spaceship Earth is probably intuitively understood by them, even if they um, never heard of him. Well, it's, it's true. It's great you're asking that, too, because I just went to the Buckminster Fuller Institute launching event here in San Francisco because... Uh. That's BFI, it's called, is moving from Philadelphia to San Francisco, and the Buckminster Fuller Archives are now at Stanford. And it was packed with millennials. I just was so inspired. They, I mean, now, a lot of audiences I talk to of young people have no idea who I'm talking about. I have to explain. He invented the geodesic dome. He invented an electric car in 1949. He was a man ahead of his time. He was a... Uh, designer and engineer. I have to say all that stuff about Bucky for them to know who I'm talking about. But um, in some audiences, but in other audiences now, because he was a futurist mm. and he predicted everything that's happening now, 
not like an out of a crystal ball, but out of his sense of design science and seeing the innovation um, take off in the human family and predicted that we would be doing more with less and more with less, that that would be the direction of our innovation, that we would have devices that would extend the capacity of the mind, that we would be able to hold things in our hand, mm. you know, I'm my iPhone now, that would make, that give us the same power as the space launch in 1969. He said that. Um, and, 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 so, and so it is. Right. He, you know, he really you know, saw the future. Right. I, I uh, heard him speak in uh, the early 70s. And when I think back on his talk, and I even had some notes from it, I was looking at, he really did predict the future. The other thing I wanted to say was, I heard somebody from the share economy giving a talk, and they said it's not about ownership, it's about accessibility. And I think that sums up much of what you've been saying. But anyway, time has flown by again. Thank you so much, Lynn. Uh, any final words you'd like to share with the audience? And again, I want to remind people the book is The Soul of Money. It's been re, uh, released and uh, available everywhere. So again, The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. Any final words for our listeners? Yeah. Have we lost Lynn? <clears throat> yeah. Hello? Oh, well, I guess those were her final words. So, yeah, so we'll wrap <laughs> it up there. But uh, great points, and uh, uh, we'll go from here. But um, that was Lynn Twist, folks. And, you know, sometimes it ends the way you plan it, and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, we are doing this interview via Skype from Los Angeles, I think San Francisco, and <laughs> Chicago. And uh, we got about 99% of it in. All right, okay. Phil. Next All time. right, then. Bye.